Welcome to the 158. On today's episode, we have Corporal David Hyen. As we are all still in quarantine, today's episode will be another Zoom call. If you like what you hear with the show, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It helps us a lot. Thanks again. All right, today we have David Hyan, Corporal David Hyan, uh, with us. Uh, thanks for joining us, Dave. He's out west. He's uh, in Victoria, beautiful city. Um, a little jealous. Uh, Dave and I were on tour together. We were in tour CR together in Golf Company. Uh, but before we get to that whole bit, um, I know that you joined before 9-11. And I was curious what, what your experience was like pre 9-11 and post 9-11 in the military? Yeah, well, you know what? First of all, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, you know, I yeah, I was in, but it was for a really short time. And if I remember correctly, it was around 1999, 2000. So I went away and I did basic in uh, Saint-Jean. Um, completed my basic, but... I also got married at the same time and my wife ended up pregnant and back then there was no money in the Canadian forces for anything. Our, you know, our, our training in Farnham, I think they popped off one flare. Like that was it. There was no money. We had a couple blank rounds to play around with, but it was really minimal. So if you wanted out back then, you almost wrote your release memo and got out that day. It was really not quite that fast, but it felt that fast. So just prior to graduation, I released. Um, the military wasn't that appealing. I got a new wife, baby on the way. Um, so I, I left. Um, I went back to Lindsay, Ontario and started a family and started a life. But it was, it, was, it really kind of felt like something was not completed in my life and it was left unfinished. And then 9-11 happens and... You know, my wife's grandmother, who's now, who's now deceased, kept saying, every time I'd see this old bat, she'd say, hey, you know, aren't you glad you're out of the military now? You don't have to go to Afghanistan. You're not going to war. And I kept thinking, no, that was the whole reason that I joined up and enlisted in the first place was because I wanted to go and do something. So in 2006, um, I re-enlisted and away I went for training. Now, back then, they were so desperate for bodies, I never went back and did basic training. My training picked up in uh, SQ, soldier qualification, in Meaford. I decided to go back into the infantry. Um, so, yeah, this, this snowy Friday in November, I get a cab ride up to the top of Meaford. The base is shut down. Um, it's, it's been completely snowed in. I get this ride to the top. Cab driver drops me off at this little headquarters building, and, and that's it. So I've got nothing but a backpack and me. And I, and I walk in. And I walk into the base commander's office. He's the only guy there. And I'm like, hey, uh, I'm here for training. I don't know where I go, and I don't know what's going on. He's like, who the fuck are you? And why are you walking? Who are you? I'm like, well, I'm Private Hyen. Here's my story. I used to be in and I got out and, you know, I'm back again. So um, he sent me over to the shacks. He says, there's a course starting on Monday. Uh, you know, we'll get you on it. So 
I walk into the shacks there in Meaford and there's, you know, the big wide open rooms, about six people per room. I've got no kit. Nobody knows who I am. They all know each other from basic. So the weekend goes by Monday morning, courses starting, inspection, 7 a.m., whatever it is. You know, I've got one pair of clothes hanging in the closet and I've got a family photo out and everything else is, is hidden away. And the platoon warrant walks in and, you know, one look around and he's like, who the fuck are you? Where's all your kit? I'm like, well, I'm Private Hyann and I just re-enlisted. And he's like, no, you're out of here. Grab your stuff and go. You're, you're heading over to Pat Platoon so you can get your kit sorted out. He says, I don't have time for you. So that's what I did. You didn't, have to, you didn't have to do a kit. You didn't have to do a kit bag drag at least that way. Nope, nothing. So I... I uh, slink over to Pat Platoon, the next, next building over, um, and throughout that week, I, I get my kit issued to me. A lot of stuff they don't have. A lot of stuff is, is missing. They're just short. Um, and the following Monday, I was, I was back on an SQ course. Um, nothing sewn in, nothing labeled. Everything was, you know, my, my combats were brand new. Nothing was worn in. I really stuck, stood out. Uh, and that's how I started my SQ. Man, so you went from, in basic, just so people know, you do a little bit of rifle training. Yeah. Not, nothing too intensive. Um, just the basics, how to take it yep. apart, care for it, go to the range. But yep. that would have been six years before. Yep. And then you're going into an infantry course where the whole, I mean, the motto is to close with and destroy the enemy. By any means. That's yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Um, so that must have been a little nerve wracking, I guess. It was. Now back then, um, so they wrote off my basic for the previous training, and I started on the soldier, the SQ course, and I don't remember how long that was, but it was in Meaford, and it was with all the Army trades. So there was clerks, there was there was everybody there. So that that course ran, and then it, you know, we graduated on a Friday. A lot of them left base and went off to their to their QL3 training, and I stayed because Monday morning, uh, DP1 battle school started out of the same building. So that's when, uh, y you know, I was on course with, I don't know if I can mention names or not, but, um, you know, all, all the guys you know. Um, yeah. yeah. I mentioned a lot of their names before. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, so... Uh, you know, Reed and Skipton and Jones and, uh, you know, those, those guys, those are the ones I went okay, through yep. with yep. for my battle school night. So back when I went through it, it was, I went through after you, best he was rolled into it. So it was all infantry. Okay. Yeah. okay. Um, so it was a little bit different and short period of time things changed. Um, yeah. So you end up going through and then getting posted to, to RCR. Yeah, um, just just to back up a little bit, you know, I'm I'm showing up there for SQ, kind of this this fresh-eyed kid. I was 26, I think, at the time. Um, we had two two course mates, if I can touch on it. Uh, ended up ended up dying in a traffic accident. Oh, uh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So Tobin and Bromley, if anybody's familiar with Meaford in the winter time, they were they were in a vehicle. Um, and I was going to go with them. They were heading into town one last time before, you know, it was a Sunday night, I think. And, um, 
man, the driver just took off out of Meaford and, and flew off that hill. I, I think they think he was doing about 120, 130. Um, missed, a, missed a turn and went straight over. And I think there was a total of four in the car. But unfortunately, those two passed away. It's two incredible young people, really. Um, you know, it, it, it hit us pretty hard. I, I think it, it, one guy in particular I know on course there, it hit really hard. Um, but there was such a shortage of kit back then that when those two passed and their kit was turned in, it was reissued to some of the guys on my course. And I remember one guy in, in particular, um, you know, ended up getting his best friend's flashlight back with her name written on the bottom of it, you know, that had been in her possession like a week earlier. So it, it was an eye-opening experience uh, to the military for sure. I mean, that I, happened to us overseas too. We ended up yeah. getting back Tom's yeah. headset and the radio. Yeah, from yeah exactly. Yeah. Stuff, right? yeah, it was a, um, it was a real wake-up call. For, to touch on that too, uh, so when I went to meet for the first time, it was in 07. Yeah. And I remember when we first got there, I think it was in the winter time or mm -hmm. just going into the winter time. Oh, no, it was in the winter time. It was in January. Yeah. Um, so um, when we, one of the first briefs that we got was about that incident. Um, and then <laughs> when I came back from my DP1, uh, that incident was still being mentioned. So they're, they're definitely remembered in Newport, just so you know. Um, yeah, so it was yeah. November 06 that they died, and then if you were there in January, it would have been right afterwards. Yeah, you know, we did a quick little, quick little gra uh, uh, funeral parade in the gym there, Monday yeah. morning, and you know, it was the first time I'd heard the whole soldier on, mission before self, and that's what we did. We, we did this little ceremony, we heard that, and away we went to make up for the classes that we'd missed that morning. Um, and that's how we rolled into it, yeah. That's wild. Yeah. So then I got, I got, yeah, you're right. I got posted to Gagetown. I got posted there in uh, April, Easter time of 07. So I'm on my way out there, and there's that big IED strike where the six guys uh, die from 2RCR. So I get to battalion. My COS date is quicker than I was able to move. So I've gone out ahead of my family. I've flown out there and, you know, we're, we're practicing. We're getting ready for these guys' uh, funeral. Um, and they said, you know, we're probably not going to be able to send you back, back to Ontario to help pack up your family and your, your wife and kids. She's going to have to do it on her own. And, and you're going to be sent off to one of these funerals. Now, that, that never came to be. I was Somebody replaced me that knew them and... Uh, I was able to go home and help pack up my family and do a proper move out there. But that was my experience. That was my, you know, welcome to, welcome to the training system and welcome to battalion. Yeah, that's, uh, we just had Jeremy on, uh, well, how many episodes before this one? Two? Maybe? A one, couple. Two? Yeah, two. Um, speaking about the Easter incident and when I got posted to RCR, the first uh, company that I got posted to was Hotel Company. I think mm -hmm. it was five platoon or something. I think it was their platoon and you get marched in and their pictures on the wall. And I forget the, the sergeant <clears> that was in charge at that time, but it was like, that was a reality check for us for sure. A real double, double whammy for you. I mean, coming in, you know, as a new guy into battalion, 
and that's where you land. And, and then coming overseas with us as the new guy as well, right, into golf company. Well, it sounds like you've had a couple incidents leading up to a big incident as well too, right? Um, yeah, it was just – it was a real eye-opener, you know. You, you realized that it was no longer fun and games. You know, this, this was – you know, this was real. So before I even deployed, um, you know, I was sitting through some of these funerals, especially those, those six guys and watching their families and their spouses and their loved ones and their kids. And uh, it was just, it, it was pretty surreal. Yeah, it's pretty surreal. So uh, you end up getting your family out there. Did you, I know you have two kids now. Uh, yep. Did you have just the one at the time or did you have both kids then? No, we had, we had both. So, um, our, our daughter was pretty young, just a toddler. Um, and my son was just a baby when we ended up out there. So, uh, unlike you, I didn't end up in the shacks at all. I went straight into a PMQ, um, not too far from the front, front gate. And, uh, I don't know if you remember a guy named Boone at all, but we, we shared a driveway and, uh, he was right there beside me. Nice. Uh, so did you end up in golf company right away? I did. So the, the battalion was deployed at the time and golf company was the rear party. So that's where we ended up and we were, you know, pretty, pretty excited about it. Um, and, but it was also full of, you know, some people that were left behind for a reason. There was definitely some characters there. So, you know, it was interesting being on rear party and interesting, seeing the guys that were left behind. Um, but yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly where I went. So to, to touch on that, you're talking about all the guys that failed the drug test that I, that made at the time that was major news. It was, yeah, that was like exactly who astronomical was, number. who was yeah. there. Um, they weren't, weren't really releasing them. They still needed them, but they weren't necessarily taking them on tour either at that time. Um, and then the so, battalion came home. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. I was going to say, I think some of those guys ended up with us, though, and then still ended up having a good career, though, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Some, yeah, some did. Some real stand-up guys, for sure. And I know, uh, you know, one of them, uh, Jones, he's, um, he's still in and out in Edmonton somewhere, different career now, different trades, sorry. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. But when the battalion came back, some of these guys were, were pushed to the sides and... Um, yeah, we started, we started building up the, the, uh, the company, getting ready to do our workup training. So did you have guys coming from Hotel and Indian Company um, <clears throat> over with you guys? And if you did, did you, like, was, were there stories of what tour was like or anything like that to get you ready? I think, I think a lot of them were pretty, pretty tight-lipped about it from what I remember. I don't remember hearing a lot of, you know, quote unquote, war stories from them. Um, Hamilton was a later addition to the company and to the platoon, if I remember correctly. Some of the other guys had, you know, multiple tours as well. Yeah, I think, you know, I think they had, they had their own experiences and, and maybe trauma. And yeah, you know, I, I just don't really remember a lot of that getting us ready like that, Matt. Right. The training, uh, however, the training was taken very seriously. That's, that's the one thing. Because these guys had deployed already and knew what to expect, there was a, a real sense of shut up and listen to what they have to say because they've done this before. 
Yeah, but the whole like rank thing kind of goes out the window. It's like you guys actually, it's like that, the, the warrant and the warrant officer and the lieutenant where it's like there's that, that argument. It's like, yeah, I know you went through the school to be the leadership, but this guy's actually lived it, right? Like, yeah, that, yeah, exactly. And you know what? We were really fortunate with the, with the warrant that we had at the time. Um, you know, that guy had been around since Somalia uh, with the Airborne before he'd gone RCR and just a tremendous Dubai, amount. Right? What's that? Dubai? Yeah. Yeah, Keith, yeah, Keith Dubai. Just a tremendous amount of respect. You know, if that guy showed up today and, and said, you know, we're going we're gonna to swim the Wanda Fuca Strait, we're going we're gonna to invade Washington, I'd get in the water and follow him. The guy was just a true leader. And he was a, he was a badass too. Like he had swaggers, but and like it wasn't just like a cocky. It was like he was he was a badass. Yeah, and he cared about the troops. You know, there was there was one or two occasions where I saw him uh, pull pull the new lieutenant uh, Miller aside and have a a quiet word, and you knew he was talking about you know maybe how hard he was running us in PT or something like that. But he just had a real. Uh, you could tell he cared about the troops. Yeah, he actually, he took me out for a coffee when he found out that I was going through a rough time. And at, yeah. at that time, I uh, I had that, like, suck it up. I had a drunk moment of crying in front of some people, and then it got back to Keith and were born Dubai. Yeah. Um, he and Towers took me out for coffee, but then I just said, nah, I was just drunk kind of thing, right? Yeah. Like, it, it just, it kind of showed that he cared, though. It was that leadership that you mentioned, for sure. Hundred, Yeah, 100%. It, you know, and Towers is another one. Uh, can't say enough enough good about the guy. A lot of respect for him too. So doing the work of training, what is the family life like? It's it's strained. You know, that's that's probably the one aspect of these stories that doesn't get covered a whole lot. There, there's a lot of tension, a lot of stress. Um, you know, I'm still fairly young at 26, but I'm married with two kids. But everybody I'm hanging around with and working with on a regular basis, yourself and others, you know, they're single guys. They can go do whatever they want. They can live that sort of college lifestyle, if you will, in the dorms, you know, where you're fighting each other with mops and buckets and, you know, crazy stories, just having a good time. And I wanted to be a part of that, too. And, and the family life suffered, um, especially as we started going away, I think. I think Texas was the first, or New Mexico was the first big training experience for us. I think that came before Wainwright, if I remember correctly. Um, and it was hard to be away. You know, I'd spend a bit of time away from them, SQ, DP1. Um, but even then, they weren't very far. I knew I was going to be posted, so I sold my house. And I rented, I rented a home in Meaford so that it didn't matter if I had a leave pass or not fuck you, I can go home. They're, they're, you know, they're 10 kilometers away, not 50. Yeah. You know, I, I found a bit of a loophole there. So yeah, it, it was difficult. My, yeah, my drinking was a real, was a real issue more so after I came home. What, what about, uh, how old was your eldest right before you left for Afghanistan? You know, I, I think she was six or seven. So sort of in that age where they, they know, but they don't know. And I can remember having conversations with her about, you know, how I was going to be gone and how I was going to be gone for a long time. And it was going to be a little bit different than um, me normally going away, training. Um, she seemed to understand it. 
and of course, I mean, I, I shielded her from as much as I could as well at that age. I, one of the things that I say now is looking back, I couldn't imagine going overseas with having my kids. That now that I have kids, I couldn't imagine that feeling. I like just even saying goodbye. Like that would be so. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, there's a sense of adventure. Um, you know, a need to see the world. You've been training to do this for such a long time. And, and if I'm honest, you know, I was selfish. I was doing it for me. I wasn't doing it to better my family. I was doing it for my own, for my own enjoyment. I wanted to know if I could go and be in those situations and how I would handle it. Everything, everything else be damned. Yeah. And that, you know, that's what I did. No, I can uh, appreciate your honesty. That's for sure. Yeah, it's, you know, it's taken a long time to get to this point. It's, it's taken a lot of ups and downs and, you know, it, it takes a lot to admit that you're, I'm, you know, a bit of a fuck up and, uh, you know, put myself first. It was really, you know, after December 13th, <clears throat> I, I came home on HLTA and I went to the funerals there for, for the guys that we had in battalion. and. Uh, so that happened December 13th, my HLTA comes around. Can we, can we go through kind of what you remember from the 13th? Because I would love to, I had people reach out to me from our tour in our platoon, guys that were on the ground that day, um, yeah. that said, I don't fully remember everything. I wish it was as clear as you have it. And I'm like, dude, I've been telling this since like 2000, pretty much since we got back. I've been telling this story to so many doctors, so many different people. Um, yeah, but that's only my perspective and that's only what I retained. Um, yeah. I'm sure that if there was more people and, and uh, Heather, Tom's wife message saying like that I have, I have the documents from that day, but I still haven't read them. You piece together some of the bits that I've been missing. Uh, I would love to be able to put more of it together. If you don't mind going yeah. through it. I Mine's tough. My, my recollection is, is also pretty, pretty scattered. I know when I heard your version of it, um, it brought back some memories, some things that I'd, that I'd forgotten. And I've really only ever told my doctor maybe once or twice. Um, I, I, I've maybe opened up to my wife and shared a little bit once when I was really drunk. So I've never done it sober um, like this. But yeah, so my recollection is... And I don't even remember what time of the day it was. It was just, it was the longest day of my life. Um, I remember there was a snap decision to add an extra lav into our convoy, making it from four to five. So three lavs and then a couple bisons or grizzlies or whatever they were. And I, I seem to remember overhearing or asking why that was happening. And it was just because of um, the danger in that area. And I didn't think anything of it, but that was really the first time that we'd ever done that. And we'd taken that extra step of throwing an extra vehicle in. So. Right. So at the time that didn't tr trigger any kind of alarm to you, but, but now looking back, that's kind of. Yeah, kinda... I did talk to a lot of us that day though. I remember too. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of us were like, this just, it doesn't feel right. But yeah. I'd say 20 my my recollection was a bit more of I, I think I was excited about it. I think I was excited that there was more chance to come into contact um, 
yeah, that, that was my initial gut feeling rolling out that day. And what I recollect <sighs> was I was a little bit more excited about it because we were going into somewhere that was just a little bit more dangerous than normal. So one of the things I always enjoyed doing as we would roll out, um, sorry, let me, let me backtrack. A lot, of, a lot of that vehicle that got hit, their guys were on HLTA, so it was backfilled. Kilby wasn't there to be the driver. Jones was put in as driver um, and a couple other places. So out of our section, headquarters section, uh, Chris was chosen to, to gun that vehicle. And then I was gunner in our headquarters lab that day. And I don't know what brought that decision about. Um, I, I don't remember if they asked us, if we were told. I, no recollection whatsoever. Um, but yeah, so Chris from my section was thrown in that gunner seat and some other spots backfilled there, the driver, like I said, and, and away we went. And I, a lot of the senior leadership was away too. Our officer wasn't there. Our, our warrant wasn't with us. Um, you find radio. Do you remember that? What's that? Do you remember radio? Yeah. Yeah. He was supposed to be in that vehicle too, and we couldn't find him at CNS, so we went without him. He was, you know, he wasn't there. So I, I had a master corporal crew commanding my vehicle. Um, they'd been given special permission at that time that they could crew command vehicles, I think, within city limits or something like that. So my sergeant was away as well. So we were, didn't really think a lot about that, but, you know, that's, that's how we went out. It, you know, it was a nice sunny day. So as we're getting closer, I remember things being called out on the radio. Um, you know, the, the motorcycle tailing us. Um, yeah, off to the side, right? It was going back and yeah, forth. Yeah, off, off to the right. You know, that in itself wasn't a huge deal or necessarily all that suspicious, I think. I don't remember hearing about the dump truck at the tail end of our convoy, uh, pulling over and blocking the road and not allowing civilian traffic to follow us until after the fact, during the AAR, I think is when I, I kind of became aware of that. Uh, we have, can you explain AAR for people that don't know? Yeah, after action report, where we, we sit down as a group and we pick apart what happened, how we could have done it differently or better. Um, and when I say AAR, I, I think it was when we actually sat down with the, uh, with the major, the OC of, of our, our company that, that I learned about that. I could be mistaken, though. So I think there was a large group of, of men and children, too, that had congregated off to the left-hand side. Um, so, yeah, it was all suspicious. I think we were being led out there by the Afghan National Police, um, and it wasn't uncommon for them to... to come across these IEDs and we would go with them. Um, so I just remember as I'm gunning this, this lav and I can't remember, I think we were maybe the second vehicle in the convoy. And, and I'm a little fuzzy on that too, honestly, but we were closer to the front. Um, I just remember looking forward at that very moment of, of the detonation. And it was this, it was almost like time stood still or slowed down where I could see this vehicle being lifted off the road and, and thrown off to the right 
off into the field, you know, 20, 30 feet, whatever it was. It was like slow motion. And then you could see that, that shock wave, you know, the, the dust starts to move around you and that shock wave travels through, through your vehicle, through your armor, uh, right through your guts. You can, you can feel your organs moving. And then, yeah, time stood still um, at, at that particular moment. Um, and that's where I think training, hours and hours of training, for myself anyways, in that position, kicked in, um, where I started scanning my arcs, looking for a target, um, because, you know, that, that was my role. Now, I was in our headquarters vehicle. It was a master corporal running the vehicle. His radio went down. He wasn't able to properly communicate with, I'm not sure if it was zero or if he wasn't able to communicate with the air support that was coming in. One of the things that uh, Warren Dubé had always told us is, you know, learn the job of the, the guy above you and below you. Well, there was nobody below me, but um, yeah, here I am communicating with, these, uh, with this Blackhawk and these uh, escort helicopters coming in you know, me, private, nobody sitting on the vehicle, talking to them, relaying what, you know, what Mark is saying to me through his headset, uh, trying to scan my arcs and trying to listen to, you know, all the, the carnage and everything else that, you know, that's going on around me and outside, outside the vehicle. Um, and it's really a, it's really kind of a blur. I remember, uh, we were being videotaped, um, <clears throat> off, off to the right, two, two men hiding behind a, a, a mud wall uh, with a camcorder. And I remember locking onto their, their position and, and, you know, asking to engage these guys and, and uh, not being allowed to. They had no weapons. It was, you know, it was justifiable, but they had no weapons. And then I remember when the aircraft left for the first time, the helicopters, they called back and they told us, you know, there was a group of about 75 to 100 males. I think they were maybe half a kilometer, 800 meters away from us with bicycle, uh, with motorcycles and uh, what appeared to be perimeter security. Um, so it was at that point we figured they were, they were waiting, waiting for a counterattack or they were about to stage a counterattack. And then it's just waiting game. Wait, wait, wait. And we were the QRF. So nobody was coming. There was nobody set up spooled to come rescue us. Right, so there's no QRF for QRF, essentially, no. right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, wow. that's when the tankers and uh, some infantry from MSG spooled up and, and started making their way to us. Now, I'm not sure how far away our, our uh, IED was from where they were located or how, how fast or how slow those tanks travel, but, man, it felt like a lifetime. I was out sitting in that field waiting that whole time. Um, yeah. To back up to where you're talking about Mark, um, uh, yeah, radioing in, he was he received commendation for that day. Did he? Good. Excellent. I, 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 I didn't know that you were. I knew that there was a problem with comms, but then he received commendation for actually getting the comms to go. But it sounds like it was kind of you getting the comms to go. But um, it it wasn't it wasn't my. I certainly didn't get them to go. It was just that at that particular moment in time. Um, he wasn't able to communicate with the aircraft coming in, but for some reason I, I had comms with them. Um, 
<clears throat> you know, and I, I remember these, the, the way I remembered it was these little attack helicopters that came in with the, uh, with the Blackhawk, with the medevac. And they were not going to stay and provide overwatch. They were leaving with that medevac to support them. But the, the first little attack helicopter rolls on scene. It's this American. And the first thing he does is he's like, he's rhyming off his munitions. You know, he's got these little, he's got these little missiles on the side. And he's got like 500 rounds at 50 cal. He's got this big southern drawl. And I can't remember his call sign. But he come rolling in and he's like, lists everything off. And he's like, where do you want them? And I'm thinking, holy fuck, I'm this 26-year-old private. I can't tell you where to put those things. You, you shoot up wherever you want to shoot up. I guarantee I am not authorized to tell you. <laughs> it's a lot of firepower for a private. I learned the job above me and that's the crew commander. But I sure as fuck don't know your job. So you shoot whatever you want. <laughs> I'm, you know. I got enough on my plate. Yeah. That's wild. Um, so I remember from that day, um, there was ammunition everywhere. You remember like all that chaos too? And yeah. That so the, you know, the vehicle, the vehicle ends up on its side. The turret, um, uh, disconnects from the vehicle and it lands a little ways beside it. Um, you know, the, the gunner, that vehicle ends up getting ejected, um, you know, and, and hurt pretty bad. I remember hearing over the radio too, that, uh, the local, uh, I think police A and P that were with us were starting to loot the back of the vehicle batteries, whatever they could get their hands on. Grenades, uh, everything. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I think the mentality was just that, you know, these these people are dead and gone. They're not going to use it, and we need it, so we're going to take it. I don't think it was a malicious, you know, spiteful act towards us as Canadians. I think that was just the mindset of, of uh, you know, the locals, and you know, they they lived that life. We came home, and, and they're still there. They're still there, living in that nightmare, right? So. Um, I certainly so, don't begrudge them I remember that. Too, we touched on when the QRF mm. actually forgot about until I maybe talking to you. Or I think it was talking to you that they ended up finding another IED on the way. Yeah. So uh, I've heard a couple different theories on it. There was one that they were going to try and hit us from the front and the rear and disable both vehicles and then attack. Um, yeah. And then I also heard, I think you had a theory on it too, or maybe Jay told me something. I, I think that what you've just said is, is what I left believing anyways. Um, you know, I ended up OTing into a different trade after that. Um, ended up going away to the academy and, and being instructed by a gentleman who had uh, shown up in the aftermath and had done the military police investigation into that. So I'm not sure really where I'm drawing my recollection of this, but yes, there was another ID that was found in, in front of us. Um, which just happened to be the direction that, that the tankers were coming from when they discovered it. And my, my belief had always been that they were spaced out in such a way that they were meant to take out maybe a first and a, and a last lav, leaving the medics and engineers exposed. So they had their bisons and a C6 machine gun. They didn't have the cannons that the labs had. 
Um, that's just what I understood to be, you know, what was going on. And then, of course, reinforced with, um, you know, a, a group of 75 to 100 males, you know, gathered half a kilometer away waiting to ambush us as well. I think probably reinforced that. And I could be completely wrong. It was obviously a lot of planning that went into that idea. And I think you touched on how they'd gone into the culverts ahead of time. And when we say culverts, they were big. You could walk through them. You know, you weren't crawling on your belly to get through these culverts. They were, they were massive, massive culverts. Um, you know, so they'd gone in and they'd taken out the concrete. And I think I'd heard there was maybe 20 or 25 jugs of, of uh, homemade explosives planted in there before it was resealed wow. over. I was told that it was the biggest IED to go off in country up to that day. Well, we've, you know, you and I, we've, we've seen the pictures of the man standing in the middle of the, of the crater, right, with this, with this meter stick. And, you know, the crater's, you know, much, much taller than, than the man standing in there. And then, of course, the, the command lines, the control lines were, were buried and with dirt and grass growing over them. I mean, this had been laid out so far in advance that I don't think it's inconceivable that the plan was to take out the first and rear vehicle and then attack the middle. Um, you know, I, I could be wrong. I don't know. It was videotaped. So who knows? Maybe one day we'll stumble across that footage on YouTube. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's some of the stuff that I still think about too. Like it's hard not to think about that stuff. I forgot about that piece, but if this is a thing, like all these years later, it, it's something that I've been going back and thinking about all the time because Again, it's like, first, I had survivor's guilt, or have survivor's guilt, thinking about the other vehicle being added, and then you think about, well, shit, it was like, it was still, could have been the first and the rear, which that's, I still would have been hit, like, I, I pretty much, I, and then on top of that, Jeff and I are sitting out in a field, yeah, the two of us, and we know that there's like 75 to 100 fighting age males <clears throat> close by, and we're like, I feel like, I, I had a lot of close to death experiences that day and it's, it's hard. It's weird. It makes me feel anxious even just thinking about it now. Um, and I, I don't know if you get those feelings too, but I, I do. I think for me, the real hang up or the, the, the stumbling block for me is uh, going home when I did at Christmas time on HLTA back to battalion and being a part of the funeral services where the families were present. So I'd done the ramp ceremony. Um, I was incredibly fortunate to be able to be a pallbearer for, um, uh, for John, you know, carrying him onto the plane. That was a, that was a huge honor. And it, it probably should have ended there for myself, but I went home on HLTA and I just, I felt like I needed to be at the battalion as well to see the families. And that's where it hit me like a thunderbolt, you know, as I watched John's wife and his little children, uh, Tom's little girl and, uh, you know, his parents were there, Justin's parents. It was right then and there. And Chris, he, Chris was there too. Um, you know, it was, and of course I'm standing out, everybody else is in green cad pat and i'm wearing you know tan um yeah so for me seeing those families being presented with the flag seeing those little kids and having little kids of my own at that age 
realizing that, you know, those kids were, were going to grow up with, without their dad, without their parents. Um, man, that really tore me apart. And that was the switch for me where when I went back, I was, I was different. I was standoffish, distant. I didn't want to see the local kids. I didn't want to give them anything. I didn't want them anywhere near me. I didn't want anybody in that country anywhere near me. I just wanted to finish off my time and go home because, because for myself, I realized that the money, the medals, the accolades, anything like that wasn't worth it for some shithole country. Um, and that, and that was just, that's a personal thing for me, but that's, that's how I felt going back. Now I miss it. I definitely, I, the whole company, I would say kind of had that same mentality. I remember, do you remember when we got uh, brought in and we were like, they were told us not to have as many EOS and they're yeah. like, fucking shooting at everyone. Fucking stop yeah. shooting. And then it was like our first patrol out. I, don't know, I think it was DJ shot at a motorcycle and Dubay's just fucking losing his mind. Like, I fucking told you guys stop shooting that shit. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It was hard not to because there was this, you know, sense of trying to be professional, but, but self-preservation as well. Um, and, and it's not even just like personal self-preservation. At that point, then it was like, for me, it was like a switch. Like, we did a lot of community engagement while we were overseas because we were KPRT. Um, yeah. Like going into some villages, seeing the same kids over and over again, you almost like you almost felt drawn to it. And then as soon as that happened, it was like the switch was off, like turned. And it was like, okay, it's us versus them. And that was yeah. kind of the mentality moving forward. It was like, like you said, all the kids and stuff, stay the fuck away from me. Don't ask me for water. Don't ask me for pens. Like I'm over yeah. it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you remember kind of like the last bit of tour? I remember, and so our EOD team got hit too. I don't know. You would have been at, were you at Wilson then? I think I could have been. It's, you know, honestly, so much of it, it blends together and I get these little snapshots every now and again, where I'll remember something like, you know, off camera, you and her, you and I were talking about that, uh, water bottle incident, you know? I'm like, I, I'd forgotten about that. That was a big deal. I mean, they, I was going to be sent home for that. That was a big deal. But I'd forgotten about it. And I don't know where that falls in my story or my timeline or other IEDs. I just remember leaving there. And I think, I think it was maybe our major that said, you know, our company had responded to, man, I want to say it was like 160 or 150 IED calls through, that, through our tour. And that's a lot for two platoons to deal with. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I was saying before, it felt like every single day when we were on QRF, we were getting oh. called out. And if we were already called out, sometimes we'd go and find three IEDs. And yeah. Nonstop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, they, they put bombs and everything from bikes to donkeys to... You know, do you remember that near the end of tour, we were starting to get told watch out for donkeys with satchels on them because they can be filled with IEDs. Yeah, yeah. One time, towers, bicycle that that blew up. You know, they they packed I they packed explosives into the frame of the bicycle, and the uh, you know I I think it maybe detonated on the 
I don't know if it was the side of the engineer's vehicle or what it was, but, and what, we went through two or three of those uh, engineer robots in our, wow. in our time over there. Yeah, I watched them blow up, you know, as they were reaching for IEDs. It just, it never ended. Yeah, those things are expensive to you. Someone yeah. was not happy. Yeah, I can't you imagine know, they're cheap. You're picking yeah. up parts of them and you're putting them in a drywall and you're thinking, like, does Canada have more of these kicking around? Because we just, we just lost one. One of them got hit. It didn't completely destroy it, but they couldn't retract it to put it inside the, the bison, the engineers. So it had to go into the back of a little Ford Ranger, you know, and that was like, it was like watching Wally roll away, you know, <laughs> Wally just fucked up again. You know, he's, he's the second or the third one now. Yeah, I think I have pictures of them. I think I have a video of one getting blown up, and you can hear the engineer going, fuck! And then, uh, and then I think I have a picture of another one where it's just, like, dismantled. Just <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was really the Wild, wild West over there, it felt like. Um, yeah. 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 Um, so when you got back, uh, so this is, for me, getting back was a complete blur. To, like, I, I was a mess. Uh, yeah, and it was pretty well documented uh, within two hours here that I didn't give a fuck. Um, but what was your experience like when you were getting back? Me too. So for myself, it was uh, it was a lot of alcohol. Um, it it was a lot of partying. It was a lot of day drinking. But everybody seemed to be doing it, so it didn't seem abnormal or wrong. My wife certainly noticed it. I was breaking a lot of shit. Computers and laptops and DVD players and electronics seemed to be my target, my target audience for that. Um, but as quick as I would go up and fly into a rage, I would come back down. And I couldn't understand why those around me, um, you know, weren't, weren't coming back down as well. Sorry, still there? Yep. Yeah, your video cut out. Uh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't see why others didn't, didn't come back down as quickly as I did. You know, I was a pretty shitty father, too. And I figured I just needed a, a change. And at this point in my career, any friends that I had were, were being posted away, uh, going away on course, promoted. They, you know, they were gone. And new people were starting to come in they just weren't really part of the, the clique or the group, if you will. And I, I figured a change is what I needed to make myself better. I'd, I'd been flagged on those blue books that you touched on um, for, for mental health issues. But I went in and I basically told them, no, I'm, you know, I'm fine. I really wanted that advanced promotion. And I couldn't get that promotion on, on the TCAT. So and it was, you know, it came with, with all kinds of caveats, like no weapons and stuff like that. So I got off that as quick as I could. I got my advanced promotion and put in a, put in a request to go to Petawawa, back to Ontario, back to where, you know, family was, home was. And I got fortunate and it was accepted. So away I went to Pet. Again, they were deployed at the time. I think I went into a rear party, uh, it was November company. Um, and it, and it was fine for a little while. I didn't want to be in a rifle company and I, I managed to, uh, find a warrant officer that I'd worked with at two RCR that was running headquarters CQ or something. 
I went and talked to him and said, Hey, can I come work for you? I just, you know, I want a bit of a break here. And you know, that's what I did. So there was three of us in an office and we didn't do a whole heck of a lot, but eventually my problems started to catch up with me again. It wasn't able to outrun them. So I figured I needed another change. So I put my name in for an occupational transfer at that point. Afghanistan was was still going, but you could see it was going to be winding down really soon. And some other trades were were desperate for people. And MP just happened to be one of those trades that that needed bodies. So I took it upon myself. I went over to the BPSO. I did all the paperwork and meetings without telling work, without telling my chain of command what was going on. Um, I, I knew the sentiment towards the MPs, and I knew that they weren't excited about losing any infantry bodies so I, I did it myself I figured it was easier to ask uh, forgiveness than permission and sure enough I was accepted so it was really it was just an, it was another distraction um, myself and eight or ten RCR guys and a seesaw guy ended up being accepted into the MPs and into the academy so that's what I did in 2013 I believe so how is that going like switching that whole, I guess you still have some infantry with you, but you're going to board and then is where yeah. it, yeah. which is, um, it was, it was horrible to be honest. Um, all the infantry guys that I was there with, we, we, we were drinking and partying. We, uh, we all had tour experience. We weren't necessarily on the same, same rotos or same tours, but you know, we knew the same people, same experiences, you know, whatever we were, we were pretty close. Um, formed a friendship pretty close together. But again, when everybody else around you is, is drinking and carrying on, it's hard to see that that, that behavior is maybe self-destructive. And I was going into that trade with my eyes closed. I didn't have a good under, and that's on me, but I didn't have a good understanding of who they were or what they did. And the very first briefing we got was from this uh, this French warrant officer, and he, he pulls up a picture of uh, Captain Rob Samaro. And I'm not oh. sure if you remember his story. Yeah, I was in Wilson when that happened. So. We, yeah, I was at uh, yeah, I was at Wilson too when that when that all happened. And then and you so he was, came in and gave us a strict lecture. Yeah. So they're coming in, and and one of our first briefing is talking about this as ethics. That's what it is, ethics. Did this guy do the right thing or not? We, nobody knows each other. And I remember putting my hand up and I, I said, you know, n- nobody was here with them. I, who are you guys to sit here and judge the aftermath of that event? I was pretty pissed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we were told that the dogged loyalty that we had to each other coming from the combat arms wasn't going to carry over into this trade. And you know, their motto is uh, discipline by example. Well, fuck me. They, they were quick to discipline you for anything and everything. By the end of the six months at the academy, I'd consumed so much alcohol. I didn't, I didn't care if I was kicked out of the military or if I moved on to my next posting. I really wanted nothing to do with them. And then I got my posting to, uh, to Victoria, to Esquimalt. Um, and, and I just, I brought all that baggage and all that shit with me. So right now, I mean, 
been a few years since you've been there. Yeah. So are you now at a point where you're looking at transitioning out of the military? Yeah, I finally have a release date. It's been years and years in the making. Um, so I came over to the MPs. Things were good, doing good work-wise. Lots of courses, lots of extra courses. <clears throat> working on some pretty big investigations. Eventually, you know, I was getting sick of the, not the little stuff that the MPs do, but, you know, the child porn, uh, the domestics. It just it kind of became too much. And I started to actually hear my story over and over again through the people that I was dealing with as, you know, a spouse would talk about her husband coming back from deployment and he's, he's drinking too much and he's distant and he's always playing video games and, or, you know, or he's talking to other chicks or stuff like this. Um, everything started to really, you know, I, I knew that story. I could relate to it. And at and a point, a breaking point came, I knew I needed help. Um, but I knew that that moment that I reached out for help, my career would be, would be over. It, that would be the, uh, the beginning of the end for me. And that's exactly what happened. I was very quickly pulled out of the guardhouse, um, put on all kinds of medications, um, and, and slowly, you know, separated from the unit and moved over to, uh, uh, JPSU or transition group as they're called now. And I've just sort of been in limbo for years now. From talking with you and catching up with you here, um, something that I'm kind of taking away from it would be that it's, and this is something that I experienced myself too. And uh, my mom told me, I hope she doesn't hear this because she'll never let it go. But she would always say you can um, run from situations and place to place, but you can never run from yourself. And that's something that I kind of hear that you're going through right now and kind of realizing too. Um, yeah. I, and do you think that you would have a recommendation or, or some sort of insight for someone that may be going through that process of, you know, do I reach out for help or don't I? Uh, do I try and stick this out for a career or do I better myself and put myself first instead of mission for a change? You know, I, I think the, the, the answer always needs to be get help. If initially you're not doing it for yourself, if you're doing it for a family member or loved one, you know, whatever it takes, reach out, start small. It's intimidating, you know. Um, yeah, it, it's intimidating. Nobody wants to be put on category, put on PCAT, and see their, see their career end. And I'm at the stage of the game where, you know, I'm about to release, and I've got a pretty good life out here, you know, Working, even though I'm still a corporal, I'm I've got spec pay and PLD out here, but I'm scared shitless of what the the next step is in in my life and how I'm going to be looked after with uh, with VA and a pension and the, and the whole nine yards. So uh, I'm constantly reaching out to people, mostly yourself and another buddy back in Ontario who's just recently released just for assurances, I guess, that it's all going to be okay. And that, and that was probably my biggest hangup with, with asking for help is how was I going to support my family once the military punted me? Because I know they say one thing and do another. I've seen it time and time and time again. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's thankfully something that I've been able to help other guys with too, where it's like, I'm, and there's so much waiting with anything with the government so that you have nothing but time to dwell on the worst case scenarios and you, you can't prepare for the unknown. 
Um, so I, thankfully I've been able to share kind of my experiences and reassure those that are looking at getting out that things are going to be okay. If you're going and helping yourself, you're not just <clears throat> on the curb. If you don't want to be, you have to yeah. do all the paperwork and everything, which is a hassle, but uh, hopefully we can keep on growing a network like we're kind of doing right now. And, and yeah. we'll hear your story and if they know you, they'll be able to reach out and you can, let yeah. them know. and then hopefully we can catch up with you again and then see what your process was like after uh, releasing. Yeah, hundred percent. Right now it looks like September's that uh, release date. We'll see with the COVID stuff going on. They're talking about uh, pushing some of these uh, release dates back a little bit, but so far I don't, I don't fall into that category, but I'm ready now. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, sharing your story with us and enjoy the summer and yeah. hopefully the release goes as smooth as possible. And yeah, we'll yeah, for sure. See you again after. Yeah. yeah well, I'd thanks love to, to, sorry. I'd love to check up with you after and see how, how that process all went for you. Cause yeah. I know it's probably not going to be smooth sailing. It, there's always going to be some kind of hang up. Right. So we'd love to hear that side of the story too. Yeah. I'd be happy to happy to pass that on too. I know it's always changing and, uh, Really appreciate the opportunity to get on here and to to, uh, to speak with you guys. I've really enjoyed listening to the other podcasts that you've had. Those guys have, have been eye-opening, and uh, it's been great. It's great to hear it. I look forward to um, it. Feel free to reach out to any of them, too. I mean, those guys are on social media and stuff, and we're just one big, big group of people that are supporting each other, right? Yeah, excellent. Okay. All right, thanks, sure. Dave. Appreciate it. Thanks again, guys. Thanks again for listening to the 158. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It would also mean a lot to us if you shared your favorite episode on your social media. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.